Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend John Presnell for a discussion of Apocalypse Now. This is our fourth Francis Ford Coppola discussion, come to think of it. We've already gone through the Godfather trilogy, and this is the other great enterprise Coppola undertook. The making of a movie is usually interesting, but in this case it's unusually interesting. It was tyranny Coppola ruled, and at the same time he was exposed to crisis after crisis after crisis, and his wife shot footage of the making of the movie enough to eventually put out a documentary on Apocalypse Now. At the time, the movie was both a scandal and a success. It won the Palme d'Or in Cannes, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, all the important ones. It won two Oscars for the most obvious achievement, the thing that nobody could deny, the cinematography of Vittorio Storaro, and then the sound. And that's important because at least you have this much agreement. It's a bewitching, mesmerizing movie that sucks you in and you come out three odd hours later, not quite realizing what you have experienced. And the movie was also a scandal, as I said, not just because the production was in such trouble, but it was in editing for three years. This was a movie shot in 76 that came out in 79, and it was barely being finished at the time. Marlon Brando was a scandal. It was his last big Hollywood role, and it was an ordeal, and his performance is both underrated and misunderstood or as our late president used to say, misunderestimated. (laughs) Very good word. (laughs) Martin Sheen had a heart attack at the ripe old age of 30. He was insane. Somebody got young Lawrence Fishburne hooked on heroin. I guess that was Dennis Hopper. So one insane thing happened after another. And of course, from the sensibilities of civilized people, there were all sorts of buffaloes slaughtered. That's right. (laughs) That would not fly today. I believe filming in the Philippines made them exempt from animal cruelty laws that govern over the making of films in the United States. That's quite a shocking scene. Also, Ferdinand Marcos, the tyrant of the Philippines, gave them the choppers they needed. He had to keep taking them away because he had an insurgency to fight. There were some revolutionaries in the Philippines, communists, I think. And so that's another Vietnam parallel. But those choppers kept coming back so that they could do their amazing, amazing cinematography. So this is in all sorts of ways a unique achievement, but it's also a very controversial movie, starting with the fact that people can't make up their minds whether it is a pro or an anti-war movie. Right. All the soldiers think it's a pro-war movie, but all the intellectuals think it's an anti-war movie, and uh, one feels that this is a necessary disagreement in American politics. John, thanks for joining me, and tell me, how did you run into the movie? What are your own thoughts overall about the picture? Oh, gosh, you know, I first saw this movie when I was in high school back in the 80s. And it just, as you said, it's a mesmerizing movie and sucks you in. And since then, I've watched it numerous times. And, of course, I'm a fan of Coppola. And, of course, at also the time, you know, remember there was in the late 70s and 80s, beginning of the Vietnam War movie craze. But Apocalypse Now is 79. And so preceding that, you have The Deer Hunter, this reassessment in the late 70s with this Vietnam War syndrome the sense of failure and defeat and all the great criticisms of the wars just being a worthless waste of time, if not immoral or illegal or what have you. And so that's another added dimension to the controversy of this, despite, you know, it's kind of shocking themes played a part of a kind of a political argument. To say this is a movie about Vietnam and to argue about the facts of the case of Vietnam, I think is not really the best way to look at this movie. But of course, it's going to come up because this is Vietnam War. 
But that's, I think, part of the controversy, too. So if this is a criticism of the Vietnam War, you know, how is it a criticism of the Vietnam War? Coppola gives voice to what you might call more conservative or right-wing critiques of the war, which was that it was never really serious with an object to victory. You just had the generals, who our character in the movie Kurtz calls them four-star clowns, and all the planners and strategists thinking of things like graduated pressure and just escalating it just to the point where hopefully the North Vietnamese would bend or relent, and then you could have some kind of settled peace. And, you know, so you hear that analysis. You don't really hear too much, I suppose, from the left. But, you know, this comes out in the late 70s, Vietnam syndrome, America's queasy about using military force. It's uncertain about what its position ought to be in the world, especially using military force. And this is, of course, the context of the Cold War. And you have a lot of doubt about what America's mission or purpose ought to be. And that's, I think, a controversy that stuck with this film also throughout the years. You know, growing up in the 80s, you get platoon and full metal jacket. And so Vietnam was a big theme in the 80s, interesting enough. At least for me, I read Vietnam War novels, and I think Tim O'Brien's book came out in the 80s. And so that's how I became interested in this movie, and I've just always retained a fascination with it. And uh, each viewing still uh, reveals things to me that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, the 80s were very big on Vietnam. It seems like a generation of Americans was formed with this assessment of what is dangerous or fearful in American character, in American politics. What might there be that we don't see fit to publicize, but we are afraid might be there inside of us? That fits very well with the narration in the movie. We don't just get a protagonist who's Mm -hmm. in our sights for most of the movie, but he talks to us about what he's thinking and about what he has experienced. As you very well put it, it's not at all clear that he's a left-wing critic of the war. In fact, he seems to be a right-wing critic. And what's more, he's not obviously wrong, or he's certainly not entirely wrong. He's both an expression of America and something to reflect on because nobody wanted things to turn out the way they did. And Mm -hmm. this is one thing that the movie captures very, very well. Vietnam got out of hand. Neither the proponents nor the opponents got their way, and nobody seems to understand what happened there after all. What does this reveal, if anything? And so we start with our protagonist played by Martin Shin, Willard, who is a captain, back for another tour because Vietnam is on his mind now. He says, when I first served, I wanted to go back home. When I got home, there was nothing there. I didn't talk to my wife until I said yes to the divorce. (laughs) Now that he's back in Vietnam, he's angry and scared that he's in Saigon and going crazy instead of being out there in the jungle. He thinks that there's something in the jungle he's supposed to do or supposed to find, and that, of course, turns out to be his mission. His work for the CIA is a man who talks about having killed people up close to have felt their last breath on his face. Although Martin Sheen was young, he plays a character that's quite ferocious. He seems a handsome, troubled man, but is a very serious warrior. And it's not entirely obvious that he's not a monster. In the first half of the movie, he seems sort of a nice guy, you would say, because he has this quality of an innocent bystander narrating his experience. He doesn't write home like a Civil War soldier, Mm -hmm. the idealism and wit of the times, but instead he's witnessed all sorts of insane things that shock and scare, but is not the perpetrator. 
Mm-hmm. It's only in the second half of the movie that you begin to take him seriously as an agent and you begin to see what he's doing. His first encounter with the army on his path to the heart of darkness, to Colonel Kurtz, to the mission he's given, is command. He's talking to generals and colonels who give him this mission. So how do you think about the mission he's given and the position of the army, the only time we get to see them speak for themselves? His mission, you know, obviously he's chosen for it. He even speaks of it when the guys come to tell him that he needs to report to headquarters as if they were delivering room service. And he, of course, is waiting for a mission because, as you noted, there's no home for him anymore. He says there's nothing there. And he says he wakes up thinking he's going to be in the jungle, but he's just in Saigon. So there's something about the jungle or the wilderness Uh, Well, he needs a mission because he really has no place or no purpose. And we find out he's trained to be an assassin. He's worked for the CIA. And so he's brought into this mission. Willard Martin Sheen's character tells us from a retrospective point of view, he'd never want to take another mission again after he took this one. So he's learned something and he no longer needs another mission after this. But he's given this mission, I think, because they've looked at his record, the generals and the colonels, and there's an unnamed civilian CIA spook of some sort, I guess, there, who tell him about this mission, about this Colonel Kurtz who has moved into Cambodia and has uh, begun prosecuting the war on his own terms, beyond any restraints, beyond any self-restraint. So his mission is to, as we're told, to, to exterminate this Colonel, eliminate his command with the famous line, extreme prejudice. That expression derived from the events of something known as the Green Beret affair in 69 or 70 about a a colonel who had assassinated independently without any permission some Vietnamese that he thought were spies. And it turned out that they were. Of course, that plays out later in the movie as well. So this is his mission. So now he has a purpose. And we're not really quite sure of it. As he goes up the river, we learn more about the details of this mission. And we learn more about the character of Willard as he's confronting, drawn, he says, to Kurtz to see what's really in the wilderness, that heart of darkness, as you said. Yeah, he is more and more attracted because Kurtz, as you pointed out, seems to be the one guy who's made the decision to win this war to fight it by any means necessary, whereas the command he faces, who sent him on this mission and who clearly judge him to be the kind of man you would want to risk in such an affair, they're strangely aloof from what's happening in the war. This captain faces a general who tells him, well, there's right and wrong and somebody's crossed the line and of course there's always a danger in war. You no longer have the old morality, all the restraints you should have. And unfortunately, the better angels of our nature don't always win Pache Lincoln. So America is going to experience something here like the Civil War in the sense that it will be as deep, as dangerous, not in the sense that it's politically a similar problem. And on the other hand, he's told that he's got to do this. This guy has got to be killed. You have an American officer, incredibly successful, incredibly respected, the embodiment of American military nobility, and he has to be exterminated by Americans. So this is one sense in which it's a fratricidal conflict now. Yes. After this view of authorities that seem shocked by what their control of the war has done since the war is slipping out of their control, he goes to another military authority where control isn't an issue. 
And <laughs> so we are introduced to Colonel Kilgore, the only other man who is his superior and whom he has to obey on this side of darkness. Here you have the most famous, the most amusing part of the movie, right. and the part where Coppola tries his hand at black comedy about Vietnam, scenes and speeches that wake you morally fully and make you think, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, we Willard has met up with the Navy riverboat that's going to take him upriver, and they have to get to this cavalry to drop him in the Nung River Delta so they can make up on their mission. When we first encounter them, they're cleaning up a raid they've done on a village where we see the slaughter, we see women and children, people bleeding to death and dead bodies, and just the mayhem of the fire and the bombs exploding and so on. And here's Colonel Kilgore, the Robert Duvall character, just standing out front. He's fearless. He's a larger-than-life character, there's no doubt about it. But what those scenes do is they point out part of what's going on in this war is that if you're fighting an enemy who is hiding among schoolchildren, uh, then you're going to have, I don't know when the term was invented, it might have been Vietnam War, uh, you're going to have collateral damage. The euphemism for schools getting bombed and women and the elderly being caught in the midst of this brutal war. It's a useful reminder here at the beginning. I don't think there's any comment of it. There's some interesting scenes when we first encounter this. First, in a Hitchcock manner, Francis Ford Coppola himself, as some kind of television journalist, giving directions to the soldiers, don't look at the camera, act like you're fighting war as they're running across. Later, we see that there's the middle of a mass going on, and a priest is right in the middle of this battle. He's leading a, a mass as they go into the Lord's Prayer jarring, extraordinary contradictions that are presented here. And then, of course, we encounter Kilgore. Kilgore is interesting. You know, obviously, he's a very effective commander, a warrior. He has great loyalty from his troops, and they love him. They idolize him. Of course, he seems fully committed to his mission or to his orders, even if he doesn't like them, which is one that Willard's going to give him. He doesn't think that this is something he wants to do, but he does it, and he does it effectively. But, of course, he also has this maybe greater love, which is surfing. And turns out that with the crew that Willard's going to be with is Lance, the great California surfer. And all of a sudden we see here, Kilgore idolizes Lance, who we were told probably had never shot a gun in his life. He's just a California sunny surfer dude. Here we have this great warrior who all of a sudden is somewhat obsequious to Lance in his praise and admiration of his ability to hang ten or whatever it is he says about surfing. Part of doing these raids is to find good beaches where there are good waves. And so he's a complicated character. This effective warrior with great command skills, his troops love him. And maybe they love him because he likes to surf, but I think they also love him because they know that he's going to lead them well. But he has this other thing for surfing. It's an interesting contradiction like the mass in the middle of the battle or the director of the actual movie is playing a character directing the soldiers. And here we have surfing and war. Coppola signals very early that this is not going to be the sort of story where the tough soldier is some kind of fascistic caricature. This guy is all of American freedom, all of American manhood, rather. <laughs> he's tough, he's funny, and he loves surfing. Who doesn't? Everything that's supposed to be freedom and activity, he likes it, and he loves war. Mm -hmm. And this air cavalry, they don't wear their helmets. They're, <laughs> they're that contemptuous of death. And clearly they took this quality from the man who stands up when other people crawl under fire. 
they go into battle, of course, blasting Wagner's Ride of the that's, Valkyries that's right. to scare the enemies and to encourage themselves. And this shows a couple of things. Of course, there's a suggestion there that there's something nihilistic about what these Americans are doing here mm-hmm. because the war is fought in such a way that they don't have an objective and they don't know what victory might mean so that they can get back to peace. They instead fight war for fun. Mm-hmm. At this point, fighting a battle just to get to a beach might be the best use of your time and resources. This is the first taste you have of how strange things get. War has escaped political control. These people are fighting war for the hell of it, and they That's enjoy right. it. This guy is, is the devil in his hell. He loves the smell mm-hmm. of napalm in the morning. That's right. <laughs> Burning people until there's nothing left of them. Well, he and even for them with his 19th century cavalry hat. And, you know, he insists on the bugle boy. He wants to harken back to these kind of older images, a certain romance to, to fighting war. One of the early scenes with the air cav in the midst of battle, we get a glimpse of maybe what the Vietnamese are thinking about this because there's a helicopter that lands and a young woman, just looks like an innocent Vietnamese woman, runs up to the helicopter and throws her hat in there, which happens to contain a grenade. And so we see here that the Vietnamese, including their women, are going to fight these invaders as they see them to maintain whatever it is they have for themselves. And so they have a real enemy, even young women do, and they know what their object is, and they're willing to die for it if need be. Whereas the Americans, it's unclear, they're effective at fighting these, clearing out the space, you bring in the napalm, but what's the end of this? Kilgore does tell his soldiers, you know, someday this war is going to end. But what is the end of this war? Is it just ending? Is there a purpose for this war? That we're not hearing too clearly. Yeah. The man regrets the notion. The way he talks about it and then he leaves, he would like the war to go on forever. It's the only fun thing there is to do while you're alive. And the Vietnamese recall, in a sense, America's greatest, most famous enemy, the Japanese, who Mm -hmm. practiced kamikaze. But as you pointed out, at this point, you no longer know whether the women or Mm -hmm. the children are enemy combatants or in some ways involved in the war. The distinction between the innocent and the weak on the one hand and on the other hand, the enemy and the strong, is meaningless in Vietnam. Nobody can figure out things. And so you do see this chopper getting destroyed. The Vietnamese have no real weaponry technologized enough to fight the Americans, but they do these other things that shock us. And of course, it's worth wondering what's more monstrous, women throwing grenades into choppers, or on the other hand, napalming entire forests into oblivion. Everybody is turning out to be less human than they thought they were, and everybody is, of course, fighting this war for a noble purpose. The surrealistic character of this first scene of war suggests that the world is out of joint. You can't tell a pretty story about this, whatever you think. It's not going to be a case of principles prevailing over reality. Reality seems to have warped all principles, and God and man and beast are mixing continuously. And so Willard gets the help he needs to go up the river and he takes these men and their patrol boat with him onto a mission they don't yet understand, but which is going to make this early episode seem tame by comparison. The man he takes with him, Corporal Lance the Surfer, wouldn't he have been better served staying with the obviously insane but fun-loving Kilgore? 
Sure As seems he goes to be down the river, he gets more and more insane and eventually is drafted into a full-on insanity cult. Yeah, that's right. Lance is one of the only two survivors at the end. Uh, Lance is a very innocent LSD tripper, and Colonel Kilgore with the air cav tries to recruit. He gives him a pair of shorts with the air cav there. He won't let him go. If Lance wanted to stay, Kilgore would just say, you know, if you want your boat up there on the, the Nung River, right, we're keeping Lance here because we got to do some surfing. Kilgore is able to gain this great loyalty and love of his troops. And there's the scene, they're at the campfire, and all the smoke is billowing, and they're cooking the meat. Kilgore, of course, is strumming his guitar. The battle is over. And our narrator, Willard, tells us the more he tried to make it like home with beer and steak and music, the more the boys missed it. This is not going to be conducive for their willingness to ultimately do whatever may be needed, required militarily to win this war. There's that ambiguity there of what are you fighting this for? I mean, if you're serious about this war, you need to think about even how, while you need your soldiers' loyal support, you know, you also need a certain commitment to this mission. But nobody seems to know what the mission is. Although the audience surely is aware of America's purported reasons for being in this war in the context of the Cold War and upholding the Republic of South Vietnam against communist forces in the North, preserving some kind of democracy and liberty. That kind of language, uh, political justifications for the war, is not very much present in this movie. And so these boys just want to go home where they can go surfing. I think we were talking one time and somebody had posted a, maybe it was a Renaissance painting of Achilles with his lyre, right? And that made me think immediately when I saw this picture of Kilgore with his guitar, right? Um, he's not an Achilles figure, but on the other hand, he is aloof from the war right? in many respects. Uh, here you have this multifaceted character, a great warrior who also can sing songs and poetry. Yes, this warrior troubadour comes up short in Willard's estimation. Because what is he going to do? What is he doing this for? So Willard has to continue precisely because he wants an answer to this question. What are we doing this for? He actually believes in the war in some strange way. Strange because he is obviously aware of how insane everything around him is. But nevertheless, he would rather have the war won. And he would want to be part of it. The only reality for him now seems to be the war. And as the boat goes up the river, you see these stranger and stranger things happening. Mm -hmm. One day they make the mistake of going off the boat, and a couple of them are almost eaten by a tiger coming out of the jungle. <laughs> Great scene, and it's a good symbol for the terrible danger and the predators that are hiding somewhere right. outside of your sight, which of course presages the fact that later two of the crew members will be killed in mm -hmm. sneak attacks from the shore because they're really not aware of what they're getting themselves into. Their enemy, however, is more like the tiger than the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a similarity between the Viet Cong and the tiger in that they're hidden. They come mm -hmm. out of nowhere. They attack you by surprise, not by dominant technology. They hide in the ground. They don't come out of the skies. But there is something stranger still. There is something that makes the Viet Cong seem comprehensible, part of our normal understanding of war. As he goes on, people seem to be less human. The boat ends up at this bridge where a unit of American soldiers, stoned out of their minds, without any leaders, seem mm -hmm. to be fighting invisible enemies, 
and this bridge they have to keep building for a certain political purpose right. the enemies keep blowing it up and it gives this image of a war that has no purpose is essentially repetitive except that it wears down the humanity these soldiers have confronted this purposeless and incredibly dangerous task and apparently they've come to the conclusion that it's better to be insane than to be sane when the world goes insane so they're forever drugged Willard and Lance go through this camp so you get to see what a nightmare it is and nevertheless that it is inhabited by people who think that that's what life is like maybe it's not their home but it's certainly where they live and mm -hmm. any thought of any other kind of life has been suspended he asks a guy who seems less insane than the others Willard <laughs> does who's in command the guy looks at him and says ain't you that's right this group of soldiers the question arising of who is in command here does not arise. They're just being there, you know. And, of course, this whole scene is filmed in this psychedelic, surrealistic, dark shadows and lights and flares. And, of course, we have this bridge that is built and then the next day is blown up. I suppose some reference to the bridge over the River Kwai or something like this. So the purposelessness, almost, if it's every day, I suppose it's like Sisyphean. There is just no end or no purpose, but that's where they're going to be. Uh, they're dead. You know, their responses, their eyes are dead. The guy they call Roach, who is some kind of a sharpshooter with a grenade launcher, all he needs to do is listen to where the sniper is, kind of aim into the darkness, explosion, and he disappears. And then he just walks off. They have no reason to think to get out of there. And they all seem to be stoned out of their minds. And by the way, Lance, he says, I just took a tab of acid. And Willard you know, has to keep looking out for him because he's dazzled by the lights of the flares and so on. And Willard has to keep dragging him down into the foxhole. Yeah, so he could end up dead or just one of these guys there drugged out of their mm -hmm. minds. And you see that here the war is really presented as a nightmare. It's not that there's so much violence or destruction. It's that human beings have stopped being awake. They can act out the war without ever being conscious of what they're doing. They have surrendered their humanity because they couldn't find any way to protect it. It's not even their lives exactly that are in danger. They might continue in this kind of walking coma. And their commander went up the river before Willard on the same mission to try mm -hmm. to assassinate Kurtz. And so they go back to their mission with some new supplies and with an increasing awareness of how strange everything is getting. And as they go up further, they run into a boat of natives, Vietnamese it would seem, yeah, are... we might be moving into Cambodia at this point, right? Of course, illegally, but this is his mission because that's where Kurtz has taken his war. And this is the first time we see Willard act in ruthlessness. He tells his patrol boat to let the people go, don't bother with that boat. But these guys want to do their duty to do patrols <laughs> on the river. And one insane thing leads to another and they open fire on the three or four people on that boat. And most of them are dead, but there's one woman who is injured. She seems to be dying, but not dead. Chief, who is in charge of the boat, wants to take her to a place to give her medical treatment. But Willard just pulls his pistol and shoots her dead. Up to that point, he had neither killed anyone nor done anything that was really scary. Here you see how dedicated he is to his mission, how right. urgent it is for him to get to Kurtz, and how little he cares anymore for these sorts of rules. Well, they're wounded, we should take them to a hospital. 
and it also shows again from a different angle the constitutive craziness of the Vietnam War for Americans. The guys who open fire and slaughter these people for no reason also want to treat the wounded and maybe save their lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. the guy who had no interest in getting involved is the one who kills the only survivor. Of course, I suppose if he explained the facts, you know, what his mission is, this would make it more difficult even for him to get ahead. But, you know, he tells the chief, just keep going, right? The mission is paramount here. And like you said, he's got to do his duty. But doing his duty leads to the sequence of events which mirror the woman who throws the grenade in the helicopter. Here we see another woman on the boat running towards a basket. But in this case, it's not a grenade. It's just she wanted to save her little puppy. But Willard says, forget this. You had mentioned before in our earlier discussion, kind of a mercy killing, and it's ruthless, it's cold. And Willard himself says in his narration that the men on his boat were never going to look at him in the same way again. But the mission is paramount. So this commitment of heading towards Kurtz is coming into clarity for the viewer, even if the crew on the boat is not as clear about it. And of course, as we travel up, we have prior to the bridge scene, of course, is the famous Playboy bunny scene as well. They stop to get some supplies, and here this base is not under attack. In fact, it's planning for a big dance party with some Playboy bunnies for the USO to entertain the troops. Once again, I suppose this kind of reminder of home and, of course, the lack of women. The only women we've seen, one throws a grenade into a helicopter, a Vietnamese. So we have these Playboy centerfold images now in the flesh dancing for hundreds of soldiers who have been with nothing but men for months, if not years. Here, we don't have any threats, as you had with the tiger, and potentially at the bridge. This is time for rest and relaxation, but it's a distraction, and perhaps it could be a fatal distraction. So you get these two visions of America that are dangled in front of the troops, and to which Willard himself is immune. The first one is the bonfire party and that That's California right. freedom that Kilgore yeah. puts on, which is all about brotherhood. It's about men. This one is all about sex, about eroticism, about this desperate desire for these uh, girls who are just there to do a striptease show. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you see that they have this vast audience of pent-up soldiers, you begin to see how shocking this really is. And, of course, it actually happened. This was really done in Vietnam, which, again, testifies to the fact that the army wasn't really sure of what they were doing, and they were nuts more than occasionally. It wasn't just Bob Hope showing up to do jokes. Sometimes there were playmate shows. Good for morale, I'm told. Yeah, the, yeah. In the story, you see how insane it is and what a difference there is between the two scenes. In this case, the image of the beautiful, these beautiful women... The guys get possessive, they want to put their hands on the girls, and so right. a riot starts, and they have to take the girls out by chopper. Whereas in the other case, there had been only calm and peace. That's the, right. the men were united, and they liked what they were doing, and worship of beauty there was this beautiful striving of surfing. Right, right. Not erotic desire. The only getting grabby there was upside down. It was Colonel Kilgore in a chopper trying to fly to get back his surfer lance from Willard. <laughs> but now after the murder on the boat, Willard is getting to be in command of the boat gradually, right. fighting it out with the chief. And they are already past the limits of even war. 
maybe Vietnam itself is past the limits of lower politics because it's a war zone, but they're past the limits of war now, and so they end up in a series of hallucinating episodes. First, they find this abandoned base where they look for supplies, and instead they run into these playmates again. And this horrifying scene unfolds here, intercut with strangely tender moments. In this scene, we see another side of Willard. While Willard is, no doubt, only at home in the wilderness for the jungle, which is no home, and we're aware of his past actions, and later we'll see him as somebody who can just engage in stark, ruthless actions, if need be, such as the mercy killing of the Vietnamese woman. You know, there's a playful, you know, stealing the surfboards. In the Redux version, we see that it was Willard who instigated that. And in this case, at this base, where the it's just downpouring of rain, it's Willard who realizes that the Playboy bunnies have landed there. I think they're there because of the rain and because they're out of fuel. Willard negotiates with somebody in exchange of a couple barrels of diesel fuel an hour with the bunnies for his men. We saw him playfully stealing the surfboard. We see here this, all right, why not let these guys have at it with some Playboy bunnies for an hour? And it turns out that they have conversations. They're listening to the worries and concerns of these young women one who really seems to regret and feels exploited by the photography she's had to do and so on. There are certain tender moments and some amusing moments that is surely outside of the larger mission, or let alone just the context of the war. But it is as if we've gone beyond the war. The further you get up the movie, there are no longer any commanding officers. I believe it's at that base where you say, oh yeah, he stepped on a grenade months ago. You know, like you said, at the bridge scene with the drugged out soldiers who were just walking in a dream, well, I thought you were the commanding officer. On the boat, we have this dispute between Willard's mission and the chief, and this is a struggle that's going to have to be fought out at which Willard wins. But we're getting to a point where there is no rule or no rules. And I guess that's Cambodia, both the reality as the war did engage in actions into Cambodia, but also a metaphor of here we are beyond the war and beyond any command or rule. But that respite with the Playboy bunnies is a striking contrast of tenderness. And Willard even, he has a line in his narration, of, you know, war can bring moments of tenderness. And we've even seen this earlier, you know, uh, Kilgore, after he's witnessed a Vietnamese woman blow up one of his helicopters, we see a Vietnamese woman with a child who's badly injured running towards him. And rather than thinking, oh, here's another woman with a grenade, right? He is the one who makes sure that she gets the transport for her infant to get the medical help needed. Willard says there are those moments of tenderness, but there's also the stark ruthlessness of war. And so we have this bifurcation, even within the nature of war. War itself is going to have certain back and forth between those two elements. Yeah, when once the rules of politics and normal life are abandoned, you don't just live in hell. There are these strange passages, even between extreme emotions. Sometimes you get a sense of peace or wonder at the world around you, the jungle, not just the various forms of horror. So this strange combination is perhaps brought to its highest pitch in the next episode, which is the French compound or estate, which doesn't have anything to do with the plot, but is also, as you pointed out to me, the one place where you can have a political conversation, apparently. The boat runs into this strange place where armed men threaten them, but they're white people. 
<laughs> this is mm -hmm. the strangest thing in the jungle, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out there's an entire estate there of former plantation that's now, of course, caught in war and somehow defended by the few families left here. And you're, of course, under no doubt, but that they will all be massacred eventually. But for now, they're alive, they're defending themselves manfully as they can, and they're putting on a show of old-world splendor that's, of course, very no strange for America. It's like paradise in the mouth of hell. Everything about a formal, sumptuous dinner and exquisite drinks and <laughs> all this luxury and the manners of the Europeans are on display for Willard alone. And he also hears these various French men of different generations talk about war, France, Vietnam, and America. Here we have really the only political discussion, which was obviously a big discussion going on in Europe and the United States during this time. And we hear all the competing accounts. So the French Diem Bin Phu takes place in 54. And in this movie, we're at 69. These guys have been on their own for, I guess it's about 15 years, and they're defending themselves. And there seems to be a kind of a grandfather and a son, but the older son now who is in charge. You know, his family's been there for whatever it was, 90 years. And this plot of land is what he's going to fight for. So as he understands the war, this is where he lives. He's not French, he says, even though, of course, we have a child quoting a poem from Baudelaire. They're wearing their little Lacoste shirts and they're having fine French cuisine and wine and cognac and so on. And so he criticizes the American war for their ideas of protecting democracy or liberty in the context of the Cold War. He calls these things nothing. And so he says what you would fight for is a plot of land that you have worked on, that your ancestors have worked on, that is your own, and that soil is what you're going to fight for. You know, we hear other arguments. Willard is the only one from the boat who's at the main household table. And sitting next to him is a young man who actually says he thinks the Americans are right. And what they need to do is win it. And if he has any criticism of the wars, they're not properly doing it to win it. But that this is the mission, the true good of civilization and of empire, of freedom. This needs to be fought to the end and won. And then, of course, we have a communist socialist at the table who fights with his father. And then we have the older man who tells us this whole war was conjured by the Americans sometimes back in the late 40s, early 50s, by creating the Viet Minh, later Viet Cong themselves, in an effort to defeat the French so that the Americans could replace the European imperial power from Vietnam. Uh, you have a lot of criticisms from everyone, it seems, of the folks back in France who seem to have stabbed them in the back and have just abandoned them. And of course, Willard sits there silently, even when he's told the war he's a part of is fighting for nothing. In a way, he sees that himself at this point where we've moved beyond the war. It's never been clearly articulated what the aims were. We know what the mission is, but we've seen battle scenes. We've seen various camps where there's no command. You know, we've left war. We have a mission. But this discussion at the table is the only political discussion in the movie. These strange Frenchmen have to make their abode there somehow. They seem to have the same principle as the Vietnamese. It's our land, we should rule it. But of right. course, they're French. Their land is far, far away, in fact. And they seem to have reverted from a nation to just being the family, the clan that they are. That's correct. Which, of course, mm -hmm. must eventually prove to be insufficient. But again, shows a certain regression of politics and maybe even history. 
we're going backwards, not just backwards into the era of plantations, but symbolically we're going backwards to the autocracy of the father of the family. That's right. And this, in some strange way, prepares us for the next episode. As the men are getting killed off by natives attacking from the bushes like they did in the era of great discoveries when great adventures like Magellan would be killed in fights with natives, you have Willard encounter finally the strangest tribe of them all which turns out to be ruled by Kurtz himself. He has finally arrived at his destination after all these strange moments that episode by episode are supposed to teach you somehow how politics and normal life are disintegrating and Mm -hmm. what the great alternatives might be. How you can go through this chaos and find some kind of clarity is not clear itself, but this seems to be in the intention of the movie. And in one way, Kurtz is so important because he's the only man in this whole movable chaos that seems to have made up his mind and to be able to act Mm -hmm. on what he has decided. And he is a strange spectacle of the noblest thing in American military having turned into the most shocking and in certain ways the basest. He has fully embraced savagery. He is worshipped mm-hmm. as a kind of savage god by a savage tribe that's not even Vietnamese. And what's worse, here Willard is finally cut off from the civilization he has spent so long trying to abandon. He doesn't fit in America, doesn't fit in Saigon, he doesn't even fit in the army anymore. But he has, on the other hand, found the one man whom he more and more admires because he seems to be fully decided on what is to be done. Here, before we get to the confrontation between Willard and Kurtz, we should talk a bit about Kurtz and where he's coming from. (coughs) Coppola wants you to think hard about British imperialism. You run into this crazy photojournalist who Mm -hmm. is supposed to be an enemy of the war, a man who gives Mm -hmm. you the documents about the insanity of the war, but who has learned to love the insanity (laughs) and who seems to have found an angel riding in the storm directing it in Kurtz. Dennis Hopper playing himself, right? (laughs) And he quotes Kipling and he quotes T.S. Eliot. So that's about British imperialism. And Eliot, of course, the poem he quotes is not just uh, J. Alfred Prufrock's love song, but also The Hollow Men, Eliot's poem on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Mm -hmm. which is the basis for this story. So somehow this is all about the crisis of British imperialism and how Americans might be replicating the experience. Mm -hmm. Now, the photojournalist played by Dennis Hopper at his most drugged out is playfully erudite, which you can attribute to Coppola. His quote from Prufrock is supposed Mm -hmm. to not merely abase him, but to show that he's essentially a creature of indecision. Mm -hmm. He has fallen under the spell of Kurtz because he is incapable of making up his own mind. He has gone far enough beyond the rules of America because he's so skeptical and against the war. But in going beyond those rules, he lost any protection he had for his mind. And he is now embracing something even weirder than war because the personality of Kurtz is so tyrannical. The influence of that, we see it also with uh, Willard's predecessor, who the official story is that on this mission, he had committed suicide or even more official that was just a killed in action. But it turns out he's alive, and arriving at this camp, he has also joined with Kurtz, submitted to Kurtz, loyal to Kurtz. 
Of course, he doesn't speak a word, but we see him there. I attribute the photojournalist Dennis Hopper character's quoting of this poetry also Shirley de Coppola and this nod towards Conrad's novel and this issue of European imperialism in Africa now transposed into Vietnam. Kurtz himself is a reader of Eliot, and I suppose he's also been reading Kipling. And so we see these allusions to T.S. Eliot. And as you said, The Hollow Men has an epigram from Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So, you know, apart from the structure of the movie following the skeletal plot of Conrad's novel, we're giving these indications. But, you know, prior to arriving at the camp, the movie presents to us, along with Willard, the first introduction to his voice on the tape when his commanders give him his mission. And we hear these strange account of a dream he has of a snail sliding along a straight razor. And uh, we're told that he is insane and unsound and he needs to be exterminated. And then as he goes up the river, he's given this dossier. And so throughout, we're able to look at his military career. We learn a few things about his family. Kurtz was true excellence, military excellence, perhaps the best, perhaps the highest. Willard tells us it was perfect, and he came from a military family as well. He was third generation, West Point. But his experience in Vietnam changed him. He wrote reports that got straight to Lyndon Johnson, we're told. Willard tells us they didn't like what he had to say, which was this war, the way it's being prosecuted, is unwinnable. We have an unclear objective. If we really seek victory, then we're not using the proper military tactics and strategy that needs to be done to do this in part because we're unwilling. And this disillusions him when they just reject this. And so he goes an alternative route, paratrooper, where the highest he'll ever get is colonel, even though we're told he's groomed to perhaps be joint chiefs. And then he goes back to the war, and slowly we learn that he begins to take independent action, assassinating without authorization some people that are presumed to be spies. And Willard, by the way, points out Apparently, he got the right guys, because after these guys were killed, any kind of enemy action basically disappeared. But it's from this type of action that he has now been charged with murder, which, of course, Willard tells us charging somebody with murder in the Vietnam War is like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. And, of course, now his mission is to kill an American. We learn a lot about Kurtz. We see his affection for his son in a letter where he says, don't tell your mother about these things that are going on, but you need to understand my methods. So he has a concern for his family. He hasn't become completely inhuman or brutish, but what he thinks in terms of the jungle, what the jungle requires to fight the war beyond the war is going to lead, as we see when we get to the camp, just the most grotesque brutality. There's bodies everywhere heads everywhere, crucifixions, blood everywhere, as well as with this loyal group that worships him as if he were a god, as he sits in his cave and reads T.S. Eliot and gives out his taped missives, I guess, over the airwaves, trying to explain what he's doing. This is what Willard has to see. He says, this is something that I am drawn to him. His mission is to exterminate him, but he realized this mission somehow was tailored to him inadvertently, because given his situation, we see him at the beginning, in the jungle, in the wilderness, metaphorically. Well, then he needs to see what it is that you get when you get to the heart of it, the heart of darkness, as it's presented in the film, borrowing from the novel. Yeah, in the Joseph Conrad novel and in the T.S. Eliot poem, it inspired, the problem is that Europeans have become hollow. 
Kurtz is the very model of a modern gentleman, but as an agent of imperialism, he turns out to be driven insane by means of greed and the exploitative character of the rule he is furthering, and eventually completely loses any trace of his humanity, and Kurtz seems to be undergoing a sort of similar self-destruction. Now, in that novel, there's a difference between British imperialism and this other continental European imperialism, which seems to be so exploitative and murderous, and somehow Europe seems to be dying itself. There is a hollowness at the center that leads to this kind of politics, that people end up with no other idea of what the noble consists in, or what might justify the rule of the superior over the inferior, except greed. Whereas in this case, the Americans are not in Vietnam for the money, they're in Vietnam for freedom at some level, for their ideals. With the Vietnamese, it's fairly clear what they're fighting for. The ones who are against Americans, the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong, they want to be ruled by themselves. This is the most ancient understanding of freedom. If you're not ruled by a foreigner, then you're free. That's right. Americans come from a different world. It's not enough not to be ruled by foreigners. Americans want to have freedom personally, individually. They mm -hmm. want to rule themselves in various ways. And you can see, as we have tried to point out again and again, various forms of American private freedom from way back home reproduced in more or less insane ways in Vietnam. Americans have brought their way of life with them, just like they have brought their way of war. It's very technological, and it's about being free from the land. Americans are only visitors in Vietnam, and somehow they're not taking either the people or the place seriously, because their armor, their power of motion, and their firepower defend them from the reality. Whereas Kurtz and now Willard are no longer in this situation, they become of the jungle, they're cut off from America. But at the same time, they seem to be fulfilling something else in American freedom. People are there to fight the war because the country said so, and they believe in the cause of their country. Mm -hmm. Kurtz is the guy who thinks, alright, if it is just that we fight this war, we should win it. Wars are fought mm -hmm. for victory, not for professions of principle. But Lyndon Johnson and the generals don't want to win this war. And so instead of becoming a general like them, he decides to do the noble thing. As a middle-aged man, he signs up for the paratroopers, which is incredibly right. demanding and risks breaking your knees and your back, of course, if not your neck. But he earns the admiration of men all over again as a battlefield commander. And he decides to win the war all by his lonesome, if necessary, which gradually alienates him from everything American he seems to face, from the point of view of nobility, like the European empires, the same question of horror. He says about himself, in explaining to Willard what kind of man he is, or what he has become, rather, that one day he was with the special forces doing a typically American humanitarian mission, inoculating Vietnamese kids against polio. Right. And then some villager comes and tells him, come, you've got to see this. The Viet Cong came by and they cut off every arm that had been inoculated of every child and made it into a pile. And mm -hmm. he says, at first I cry like a grandmother. But then something else strikes him. The warrior in him wakes up and he realizes this is it. This is what I needed to learn all along. These ruthless Vietnamese who love their families and live life as they can, nevertheless are capable of doing this sort of thing to their own people. Now, up till then, Kurtz had been shocked at the combination of moralism and impotence of his own American people. 
Mm-hmm. He says, look at what we're doing. We're telling boys to dump fire on people, but we won't let them write fuck on their planes because that's obscene. This is a typical American moralism, and in this case, both the extremes of destruction it permits and the extremes of censorship of behavior it imposes seem to miss the point of politics and war. And he seems mm-hmm. to think that that's why people are distracted, they can't take the war seriously. They're playing these moral games. But instead, he discovers something else, not how to fight the war, but how to fight against your own people. The Vietnamese are willing to slaughter their own no problem. And he realizes that this is the thing that he must learn himself. And so he says that you've got to make friends of horror and of moral terror. Now, Mm -hmm. horror is unthinkable. Moral terror is a different thing. It means no longer being human. And he decides to become such a creature as these acts by the Vietnamese discover to him. He has a revelation of necessity. And so he tells Willer that you need freedom. He's the only guy who ever talks about this. And he says freedom from the opinions of others and then freedom from the opinions of yourself. Willer has already got freedom from the opinions of others, which turns out to mean he's no good to live with other human beings anymore. But Kurtz has gone one step forward and has abandoned morality as a personal claim. It's not about what America thinks of him. It's what he thinks of himself. He thinks he has learned something and has become two things, a ruler and a teacher. As a teacher, he wants to teach his son, apparently. He wants to teach Willard and other people like him. But he also is trying to teach somehow America or the world about what he has learned. He keeps dictating into his dictaphone his lessons, his experience from the heart of darkness. As a ruler, he was supposed to win the war, but he seems to have ended up ineffective, lying around waiting to die. He has Mm -hmm. come to some kind of crisis. There's nobody listening to him. And although he's being worshipped as a god, he can't act effectively anymore. He's not going to be winning this war after all. He was dazed by necessity. Freeing yourself from your own opinion means not thinking that you have the luxury to define who you are and what you can do and what you cannot do. Learning from your enemy to treat your friends as enemies, apparently. Learning that is to say that everything is expendable, that being human is not special. Now, we're of course in dangers our idea of our humanity. If we're so human, why do we have to keep killing each other? Mm -hmm. If we're better than beasts, why do we keep preying on each other? But war preserves the distinction between friend and foe. And in this way, it allows you to return to peace by way of victory. Mm -hmm. And so America is facing, like the Europeans before, the questions of freedom and empire. From the point of view of American freedom, you can't have the Soviets, who have achieved nuclear parity, take over more and more of the world. It's bad enough that China felt that half of Europe is communist and so is half of Korea. You can't keep letting this happen. You have to fight back to defend American freedom. But to defend American freedom requires to create an empire, to create the kind of power that allows for destruction of your enemies. And so you have an education for peace in American freedom, and you have an education for war in empire, and war seems to have taken over from peace. Mm -hmm. This is not what Americans thought they were signing up for, this is not where they wanted to end up, but it is where they have ended up. And Kurtz thinks that he has learned that war is the true teacher, not peace. And the word the teacher teaches you one specific thing. You have to become horror. You have to become moral terror. You have to see that face and make it your friend. That is, that is to say, where you will recognize yourself. Your friend is alike to you. You will finally acquire self-knowledge by leaving all the delusions of civilization behind. 
embrace necessity, abandon moral scruples, and that is the path to victory. But instead, Willard sees that it has led Kurtz to this strange disease of the soul that is leading him to die there, alone, unable to talk to anybody anymore. And so all of his humanity has been withdrawn from him. He cannot communicate anymore. You know, he does not cease to communicate. And he wants Willard to kill him after a certain point. So he's going to offer himself up as a sacrifice. This god will be sacrificed by this stranger at the same time, of course, that the folks outside are sacrificing the animal, the water buffalo. And then the point here is for Willard to see and tell the truth without the moralism, which, of course, Kurtz sees simply as lies, right? Because the moralisms obscure the horror, as you say, which is the nothing at the heart of darkness and the necessity of war requiring you to do the most ruthless and brutal acts, such as chopping off the little arms of children who have been inoculated. The, the pretext that we're doing something good by preventing polio, or that needs to be eliminated. But in this way, he has kind of gone beyond almost any justification for the war, which can even be turned upon one's own people. But perhaps these communications, Willard will go back. What is he supposed to tell the son about the horror? How can one live with the horror? How will this prevent the hollow men, right? This kind of emptiness. Kurtz speaks of without judgment. My actions are without judgment. There is no standard of right or wrong or good or evil that one can praise or condemn. One only has oneself the basis to make decisions, and that self is in the natural self is the self of the jungle, and that's eat or be eaten, that's fight, that's war, and one must do what is needed. And so here we have, you know, without judgment, so there's nothing, no standard towards which you wish to live. So you have no guidance in the choices that you're making. And you have no standard, perhaps, for self-improvement or self-transcendence to acknowledge faults and try to improve. That disappears. But rather than just wallow in or be satisfied surfing, right, that could be one example of just the kind of satisfied consumer of modern American life and no judgment, right? Here, in the context of no judgment, there's still this mission of somehow self-overcoming in the face of terror, truly. right. In other words, can you look at the terror and still have some ambitions for greatness? But this would require some superhuman quality. Kurtz becomes like a god the more he becomes like a beast and he ceases to be human. And Willard acknowledges this. So Willard is tempted, but he is not going to become like Kurtz, although he is going to participate in Kurtz's plan to have him killed. Kurtz offers himself up as a sacrifice. Willard tells us, everybody wanted me to do this. Obviously, my commanders want me to do this, but Kurtz himself wants me to do this. Do I want to do it? He's going to do it. Is he going to continue with the mission to provide this teaching of the horror that maybe Americans need to know to confront? It, will he even be listened to? Will he sound like he's just a madman? That's how the commanders see Kurtz, which he is from the context of ordinary morality. He's moved beyond those standards of good and evil. So it's an ambiguous ending. We know the hollow men, you have that ending. How does the world end? Not with a bang, but with a whimper. In the Conrad novel, we learn that Kurtz there wants to just exterminate all the brutes. So at this point, just absolute annihilation, genocide. And in the movie, we see a manuscript that Kurtz has been working on where he writes, exterminate them all, drop the bomb, right? The hydrogen bomb or something like this. That's a bomb that's like a whimper, as opposed to just ordinary thermonuclear weapon. 
But that's kind of a, an auspicious ending to everything. Where Kurtz has led him in the horror, there's nowhere to go. How can you say just exterminating human life? Sure, it's going to end in a whimper, but you can't live with that kind of horror, I think. At least that's Willard's conclusion. But yeah. he's learned something, obviously, from Kurtz, for sure. Yeah, he seems to, at some level, survive this horror. But as you pointed out, it's not at all clear what he could possibly say. We look to Conrad or to Coppola to deliver this moral teaching in a way that makes people somewhat more serious. And mm -hmm. Willard is so useful as a narrator because he is much closer than any of us normal people to Kurtz's own point of view. You can't go off fighting wars and then not win them. It's more mm -hmm. insane to not want to win the wars than it is to uh, start them. And so he has to confront the fact that if you go beyond a certain point, chasing this kind of necessity that you think means you're going to be the winner, it dehumanizes you. Mm -hmm. And he manages to walk back from that without becoming worse than he was to begin with. He had already murdered. He was a sinner, to say the least. He was stained mm -hmm. by blood, and he has done it again. But there's some degree of justification and of excuse for his acts, and he certainly refrained from becoming Kurtz. Of course, when he murders him, the tribe now worship him as a god. That's right. And that temptation is there. Maybe do what Kurtz failed to do. A younger, stronger man might be able to pull it off. But instead, he drops his weapon. He wants an and end it, to the bloodshed, apparently. And it, of course, as he gets back on the boat with Lance, whom he wants to take back to some kind of civilization, he disconnects his radio because he doesn't want to be part of whatever else the army may have planned. He doesn't want to be somebody's weapon, just like he doesn't want to be somebody's murderer anymore. So he does seem to have fallen back on morality at some level. It's important to see that Kurtz really is a very American figure. Think of Charlie Manson when the movie mm. set, or think of mm. Jim Jones and mm. the Jungle Compound uh, <laughs> and the Suicide Cult when the yeah. year the movie was put out. These things do happen in America. There is a certain temptation to establish cults that get the one true idea that gets you right with the cosmos. In some sense, Kurtz is the highest production of the 60s, or Vietnam is the highest production yep. of the 60s, in the sense that freedom as self-actualization, self-expression, finding out who you truly are beyond all rules, you know, leave behind all that Christianity, leave behind all those norms that the system imposes on you. Do your thing, man. You see a horrifying version of that. This recalls to mind the joke of Leo Strauss that if morality is relative to some decision, simply to some commitment or arbitrary, then cannibalism just is a matter of taste. <laughs> mm. Yep. What's the standard upon which you could object to cannibalism? What's the standard upon which you can object to cutting off hundreds of kids' arms? What's the standard that you could object to Kurtz's methods or lack thereof? Kurtz says, drop the bomb. You know, Willard unplugging his radio, he says he's not part of their army anymore. But of course, unplugging the radio also means he doesn't call in the airstrike. Because after all, Kurtz has been killed, so these folks can go on and do whatever it was they were doing. But if you were Kurtz, what would it matter if you just called in the airstrike and eliminated everyone? So he has fallen back to a certain degree of morality. And maybe by showing these polarized extremes in this movie, you can begin to think about what might a hidden middle way even if you think of American way of war, if not imperialism or if not foreign wars fought for these ideas, we see soldiers who are in no way capable of being soldiers. 
And why is this? Well, there's something about their American way of life, which is more attractive in that way of peace and that self-actualization and self-realization and self-determination. It makes them incapable of being able to fight. So maybe we have somewhat of a critique of that excess, just as we can have the critique of the excess of brutality. We could also have a critique of that excess, the life of no judgment, where one just does whatever one wants in peace. Both seem to have no purpose. And so there's a hidden middle that you could search for throughout this movie. You know, in the French plantation scene, when uh, Willard is with the widow and they're smoking opium in bed and she tells him about her deceased husband, an opium addict himself, and she would tell her husband, one part of you fights and one part of you loves. And the husband responds to her, we're told, so what am I? Am I a beast or am I a god? Maybe you're some kind of a mixture. As you pointed out, that scene is out of the context of the political community. Beasts or gods can only exist outside the political community. But there might be some hidden middle here. And for all the condemnation of this movie, it provides a lot of ways for reflecting upon how to live well, even if it doesn't provide us with answers. And it surely shows us extremes that need to be questioned and understood and perhaps criticized. Yeah, I think this is the main contribution of Coppola. He shows you, as you put it, extremes that imply certain arguments. And the scenes show you that the different views, there's something wrong with all of them. And there is a certain connection between the freedom of self-actualization in peace and going nuts in war. Just like there is a certain connection between the moralism of not saying obscene words and the moralism of blowing people up or napalming them onto oblivion. As you put it, there's a certain lack of purpose, a certain lack of standards of judgment. Americans reveal themselves as either aiming too high or aiming too low. This seems mm -hmm. to be the problem, and their conception of freedom seems to be somehow misguided. People have somehow forgot something. And of course, this is Vietnam set in 69. This was the collapse of liberal confidence in America right after it had reached its peak. Mm -hmm. This was supposed mm -hmm. to be the revolutionary America of JFK and LBJ of the Great Society. And That's of right. course, it turned new out also Vietnam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the new frontier was horror. And America recoiled. And somehow the country has to square with what was done, with the successes and the failures, with noble intentions and with horrifying deeds. And maybe get some sense of moderation maybe find some way to avoid these extremes of war and peace, of moralism and demoralism. You're mentioning about Manson or Jim Jones and cults and so on. Brings to mind also just the, the use of music in this film, which begins with the end. The End by the Doors, the song. And of course ends with the soundtrack playing The End by the Doors. Here you have a band from the late 60s, you know, kind of quintessential, countercultural, hippie band. Not necessarily so much of a peace and love band, but surely a countercultural band. And one that was surely popular. They were number one hit with Light My Fire with the peace and love hippie crowd as with anyone else. But this song about the end, the beautiful friend, the end, which goes into this, I don't know if it's in the movie, but the long excursion and this kind of Oedipal, father, I want to kill you, mother, I want to, yeah, and so we see Jim Morrison setting up a cult for himself. And by the way, mentioning Apocalypse Now being fascination in the 80s and Vietnam movies, The Doors had a resurgence. Their Greatest Hits album, which came out, I think, in 81, sold more than all their other individual albums, I think maybe even combined. 
there was so a cult had, had developed around Jim Morrison, right? I mean, some of it's laughable, perhaps some of it's a little bit unfortunate what happened to him, but not surprising in the slightest bit. And his freedom led him to OD in a bathtub in Paris. There's things, some commentary, like you said, Kurt's the natural result of the 60s. There's something there that just in, back to the movie, Lance the Surfer, he's willing to join this cult, you know, just as some kids joined with Manson and whole groups of people, not just kids, flew down to Guyana with Jim Jones, all of which seemed to have some death cult because they saw some emptiness at the heart of things as they saw it. They were going to do whatever was necessary, you know, even just the Jim Jones analogy, revolutionary suicide. That's the action. It's a bleak vision of things. And I don't think Coppola is endorsing it all, right? He's just pointing out this tendency. Yes. That's the danger, though. You present that, you know, like Morrison. How many young men look at Jim Morrison and listen to his music inspired by it and begin to model themselves out of it with the sex and the drugs and the other more risky behavior? They have ruined their lives kind of just following that. Something enchanting about it. Coppola, I don't think, is endorsing this at all, but it sees it as one possible outcome of it. Exactly. This seems to be simply part of American character. It's a temptation. It's an excess of freedom that leads to destruction, and you can't get rid of it. And Coppola apparently thinks that you shouldn't ignore it. You should be able to face this stuff. At this level, it's hard to judge whether he is right, but he's certainly very good at showing what the problem mm -hmm. is. Yeah, go from surfing to cults and maybe back again. And this does happen in America. Vietnam is seared into the national memory to an extent, but the 70s were written out of the national memory. That's when for all sure. the free love and mm -hmm. understanding and peace of the hippies turned into the craziest drug-fueled decade in American history. Mm -hmm. And the country in some sense has gone back to normal, but in another sense has refused to see what there is to see, whereas Coppola seems to have been, at the time in the 70s, completely focused on what is happening to this country, what are we doing, and why is this coming out of us? That's the whole point of Heart of Darkness, that the hollowness has to come from inside. The corruption of nobility to turn into some kind of monstrosity has to come from inside, because it is a case of the Goliath, America, losing to the David of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And Americans never see themselves in that way. It's only in a story like this that you see what this massive power looks like, that it can bring hell on earth and rain there. The movie is not really pro or anti-war because it's about what Vietnam meant for America and why it came out of the American character in, in those circumstances. You know, I could see where veterans of the war, you know, have good reason to be offended by this movie because surely the things that they did and the sacrifices they made and the dead deserve a treatment that shows their valor, their honor and their commitment and their skill. That's not something we see in the movie. Of course, this is Hollywood. That type of, of film made in the context of Vietnam is not something you see too often. I believe there's a We Were Soldiers. Was that a Mel Gibson movie? I understand and agree with, from the point of view of the veteran, their criticism of this. But Coppola did not mean to offend whatever good that may be. You know, he was trying to point towards general mood and attitude about America in the late 70s and these themes about freedom and empire and how can you maintain these things and these extremes that Americans seem to go to in their freedom and how they understand it. And like I said, if you look at it, you can begin to ponder about what would be some kind of missing middle that uh, would be appropriate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in a certain way, the movie does seem to reproduce the American attitude. 
Nobody was grateful to the Vietnam veterans. Nobody thanked them. Nobody had parades. And the politicians didn't want to win the war. And the people wanted to forget about it. And the veterans of Vietnam were the first generation of veterans to be ignored. The face of America turned away from them. And some suffered abuse for their service, which is part of the national disgrace. Sure it is. The times when you hear Willard say the generals are just clowns and they're going to give the whole circus away, you hear a certain kind of resentment against the incompetence of politics and public life in America that surely is justified. That is exactly what happened. Kurtz goes further and he says to Willard, you're just an errand boy collecting a bill (laughs) for grocers. That's right. You people are just in it for the commerce, you're thinking in money terms, you're calculating without any regard to the morality and the horror that are actually at stake here. And there's some justification for that attitude as well. But yeah, you're right, the ones who end up slighted, however involuntarily, are the veterans, and this seems to be something Americans just can't fix. I do think, however, that the movie based on Hal Moore's book, We Were Soldiers, starring Mel Gibson, that is both a good movie and a show of American military nobility. I do recommend that movie. Well, John, thanks for joining me. We have gone through what is a very disturbing movie, trying to show why it disturbs us, what is mesmerizing about it, in what ways it criticizes American society, and in what ways it tries to explain what happened, a rather existential level that comprehends morality and politics and individual aspirations and political necessities. Thanks for joining me again. And Thanks for uh, having me. Our next conversation is Untouchables. I'm looking forward to talking uh, De Palma again and Mamet. That's going to be more fun. Yes, yes, it will. (laughs) Sounds great. Very much to you. All the best, John. You too.